Have you ever wondered how mathematicians and physicists come up with their groundbreaking theories? Or how we use science to solve complex real-world problems? Join my team and I as we explore topics ranging from calculus, paradynamics, biology, chemistry, computer science, and well, just about everything in between. Whether you're a student of math, a curious learner, or simply someone who wants to know more about the beauty of numbers and corrosion, this podcast is for you. We want to extend a special thank you to CSU Channel Island's Dolphin Radio, NASA's Undergraduate Student Research Challenge, and all of the otherworldly mentors which make undergraduate research and this podcast possible. And hey, don't forget to check out our website, crackingmathpodcast.com. So tune in, grab a pencil and paper, and get ready to crack the secrets of math. Welcome to this episode of Cracking the Secrets of Math. We're on season two and we have a special episode. We have a co-host today, uh, Patrick McDonough. He's sitting in for our research mentor, Dr. Cynthia Flores. So this is going to be particularly exciting. Patrick, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, Sure. I'm Patrick McDonough, like you said. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree from Channel Islands in mathematics and computer science. And I'm currently working towards a master's degree in math, also at Channel Islands. Wonderful. Thank you, Patrick. And we have our other two guests. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm Daniel. I'm a senior uh, here at Channel Islands. I'm currently studying as an applied physicist and uh, excited to be here. Right. And you're and you're on our SVET team, which is cool. So you're the ex- with us on, you're an experimentalist like that is, myself. That is correct. The yes. newest and most proudest member. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, we love that. And then someone else who has been very instrumental in just helping make sure that we have the connections of the people we need connections to and uh, who has worked with a research mentor of ours for almost a decade now, right? Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Max Seligman. I'm an alumni of Channel Islands, both a bachelor's in applied physics, as well as a master's in business administration, as well as biotechnology. Uh, my my current position on campus, I'm a staff member, the mechatronics and computer science uh, lab technician, and I'm also part of the SVET team. Wonderful. And so we've had uh, a pretty exciting journey with our SVET apparatus, where I think last season we talked about how we used a 3D printer, uh, four 3D printers that we pieced together. And it was really great. We got a, we got a good map with it, but it definitely had... Uh, it was somewhat temperamental, right? We we it didn't like to remember where it went, and that was particularly challenging, right? And so when that happens, I think that uh, we could talk about some of the things that it did. So our electrode, uh, we kept crashing it, right? I think we all did that, right? Right. It was always a scary moment seeing that uh, not go exactly where you want to. Always have to have the emergency switch, you know. And and for us, the emergency switch was just unplugging it as quick as possible. I think Max actually had to leap for the the power plug once. Yeah, it it would jolt a couple times, and by then it was almost too late. So you always found yourself uh, chasing after it, hoping that you didn't crash into the wall of the tank or or something like that. So this new printer will will definitely help us in our endeavors. So I've used it a few times, uh, the old printer that crashes, and I don't think I ever crashed it. Am I the only one? Hey, it's a uh, beginner's luck, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, yes it is. Well, uh, but still. 
I think I might have also been a little more aggressive in setting the maps where I'm like, we can get it right to the edge, you guys. <laughs> the the printer, though, so when you when we were calibrating and you would move from point to point was reliable in that sense. However, when you put together the whole map of 600 plus points and then say, okay, now go back to point number one, we would like to try again. Uh, that was really where the where the issue came in, where it would think it was somewhere and be somewhere completely different, usually around the edge of the tank crashing into something. Do you know why that happened and why it didn't cause problems back in its first life as a you know real three D printer? We have a couple theories. Um, the its first life as a three D printer was sort of a kit built by students as a project to get into three D printing and and the like. Um, this printer in particular had a different kind of belt drive system than what we've seen. Uh, for the more recent printers, they have like a rubberized belt. This one was sort of like a steel cable, like a screw type mechanism. So it was unlike anything we'd ever seen before. And a lot of the parts weren't necessarily tensioned properly or the motors weren't calibrated right. So we were finding where we would think we would move, for example, two millimeters one direction and two millimeters back. We would move one and a half in one direction and four back for some reason that we didn't really understand. Right. And so for us, it worked out to where if we wanted a good map, we set everything up and do the map once. And if we wanted to rerun it, we had to make sure we reset our dipoles and everything and make sure it was homed at the right place. Um, and so, yes, Patrick, were you going to say something? So did it have those problems when you were using it as a 3D printer? To my knowledge, it was never used as a 3D printer for what we were trying to do. Um, they were sort of decommissioned when the next generation came in. But it, it could, like, 3D print things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, again, due to the mechanism of how the old printer moved, um, it was very jerky in the sense that uh, you'd move, and every time you collect a point, you want to stay in that point for a little bit of time. However, when you're jerking a lot and you're working with water, uh, it starts sloshing around and oscillating in a, a typically specific pattern since we're moving at the same rate. And what would end up happening is that we'd get these dipole maps in which we have these oscillations in them. And we'd be like, why, why is this happening? So we'd uh, start slowing the, the printer down as we were collecting these things. And we seem to have found that it was slightly less oscillation in the map so we assumed that part of our issue uh, was that. Um, and, you know, with the old printer, we could slow down, but you could only slow down so much without spending hours at a time being there. So with this new printer, if everything runs super smoothly, then I mean... It's really nice. Because, because of those old belts we had, they were like corkscrews. And so their resolution was just as good as you can get between those windings. And so... Just like you said, when it would move, it would slosh and you literally would have to wait, I mean, a minute or two if you wanted that sloshing to end and it's perturbing the field when it's doing that. So the new one moves real nice and smooth and so we don't see the same um, perturbation of our electrolytic solution. So do you come to a complete stop before you make each measurement still? Yes. Yes. Just to let everything settle. There's a settling time of a, of a couple seconds just so that it can kind of stop jostling around. Yeah, I mean, if you just imagine a glass of water and you're shifting it across the table, then if you do it really quickly, you're going to get a lot of movement. If you do it slowly, it won't be as much. But even if you move it slowly, it'll still have some uh, 
perturbation, you just want to let it settle, settle a bit. Yeah. It's also for the electrodes, too, because we want to make sure that they are where we think they are, as close as we can get them in the tank. So, for example, if we stop for a second or two before taking data, we know that the motors have stopped moving, the water hopefully has stopped moving, and everything should be theoretically where we hope it would be, and thus give us some better hope at some better data. And that's actually a good point, too, because another thing that we do is we actually, uh, you want to cut the current to the uh, to the motors, the stepper motors, because when they're holding a position, they're emitting a really high frequency that we can pick up. And it's like, re I mean, high enough to where it's like 20 or 30,000 hertz, but it's something that our device is sensitive enough to pick up. And so those are the type of, um, I guess, noise reduction that we're looking at. Water oscillation when we're moving the tank around, the stepper motors holding that position, all these little things that we're minimizing as much as we can. Is turning off the stepper motors part of why you weren't able to get back to the starting point on the previous printer? No. We, we've had on a previous printer uh, mapping apparatus, we had that same issue because the problem with the holding current was that noise was in a similar band of what we wanted to measure. So we had to find a way to eliminate it, and that was the only way was to essentially turn the printer off take the data, then in the code, we had to mod write modified code that would move the array or electrodes, take data, or turn off, take data, turn back on, move to the next point, and repeat until you go through the whole map in, in an effort to eliminate as much of that high-frequency noise as we could. Earlier, Max mentioned uh, different frequencies of noise and data you were getting. Um, you're using 4A analysis for some of this. Can you talk about that? There's like a there's like a couple caveats where the we're measuring voltages differentially. And so if we have, you know, an electrode or say two electrodes, we can measure the voltages between them. And our amplifiers and our preamplifiers are set up so that they can uh, measure differentially to ground. When we take that data with our data acquisition device, we do it at 100,000 samples a second, and we store it in MATLAB. Now, to do our FOIA analysis, there's an embedded, uh, I, I think it's an, a spectrum is embedded in MATLAB, or is that? No, that's what I was thinking about, because I was trying to explain that, but I believe that's something we did, um, which essentially does an FFT right. of, of it and displays it on the frequency spectrum. Um, right, so we had a, there's a function that we were able to use from uh, some other research that was done on mapping the electric fields of fish. And it does the fast FOIA transform on the data. And so not only are we confident and have had that function validated as far as the FOIA analysis for the other research that was done, we can use it to, trans to look at our data from the time domain into the frequency domain. And that's what gives us insight on the certain frequency noises that we're looking at that shouldn't be there, like those high frequency noises that are, or uh, frequencies that are just noise. We can see the uh, 60 hertz that are emanating from uh, the power lines, for instance. Now, if we have an electrode, if we have multiple electrodes, and we want to figure out the distance between them, that is devilishly difficult to do with a ruler. Um, you can't. You can't do it with even a caliper because the distances are very tiny. And so we can actually... Uh, recall our ENM and calculate 
uh, the like the electrostatic distance between them using uh, E&M basically. And so you're measuring a voltage at each of them. You do them differentially and then you can just extrapolate if you know all the other information what the distance is without directly character uh without directly measuring it you're measuring voltages to extrapolate the distance between the electrodes right and to be honest if we go back to the to the fast Fourier transform uh you know as physicists that's quite useful to see you can actually see a graph with the peaks and you can uh tell well okay 60 hertz that's sort of expected that's a uh, uh, a given and of course you try to reduce that as much you can but then we can also see the other characters, uh, characteristics we should see, which, you know, if we're doing SPET and we see some uh, something that's actually uh, supposed to be vibrating, we can see that frequency and then all the harmonics that go along with it. So it's uh, definitely seeing it in a uh, frequency domain is far more intuitive than if you're trying to guess around just looking at you, Yeah, numbers. you wouldn't be able to pinpoint, hey, this is line noise, this is 60 hertz from our power grid, this is the vibration of the probe, this is these weird artifacts. Exactly. I think that's really important. So you're plugging all of that data into MATLAB calculations, not just looking at the output of it, right? No, it's all going through MATLAB, uh, like calculations and functions and stuff to extrapolate this data. It's a bit of both sometimes. So when we started measuring, we would take, for example, one second of data, use a spectrum to show us the frequencies, and we would see, uh, for example, high-frequency noise. And we would start looking around the room. What is What could be the cause of this noise? Is it the lights? Is yeah. it the Turns computer? Turns off the lights. Yeah, exactly. Right. So we would go around the room or plug in, unplug different devices, change things, move things, and take data again and see if it would make any difference. So slowly we would come to uh, conclusions, for example, if we had a lot of 60 hertz noise or a harmonic of such, if we added, for example, a ground wire to the printer or the computer or something else on the bench, did it go away? Did it get better? Um, like with the stepper noise, we found, well, if you turn off the printer, it goes away. So that was a bit more challenging to resolve because we're like, well, we need to move the printer to take the data, but we can't have the printer on because it has noise. So that's why we ended up writing modified code where we would move and then effectively turn off the printer to take the data so the noise wasn't there, but then we would turn back on to move and progress throughout the map. So uh, you've all mentioned 60 hertz noise a couple of times. Is that from uh, wall power? Yeah. Okay. Uh, 60 hertz, 120, any of those, uh, it just it exists around us and there's literally no way to get around it. Well, we can do clever things. We have a power isolation transformer that isolates our computer, our instrumentation amplifiers, our printer from the grid. Um, and then we also have a uh, broadband filter that helps filter out any additional noise. But that's what comes through the lines. That's not necessarily just this EMF that just exists around us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of one of the reasons why we have pretty much every single thing we can grounded. Even the, the computer's even grounded to the same, same thing, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, on that front, if you went to other countries that use a different frequency for their power grid, you'd see, like, in Great Britain, 50 hertz would be there instead of, and, and the harmonics of 50 hertz as opposed to our 60 hertz. So it's just something we can see through A-spectrum, through Fourier analysis, something that 
we can deal with. But if we know that exists and that always exists there, it's not a problem, <laughs> right? We just make sure that we do our data and we vibrate our probe and everything, not on that 60 hertz, you know, harmonic, so that we actually know that's that's what we're that's what we're doing. So, what are you planning on doing now that you have all this data? Well, so the next big step is we had uh, an electric potential map which is a big thing. We, uh, in a couple episodes ago, we talked about uh, our trip to Soknos and we were able to present this data. So that was the first big step where we have these electric potential maps. I believe, Patrick, you made a dipole that we were able to experimentally validate. And so the next step for us is the current density maps. And so that's, we had to build a new electrode because I may or may not have crashed it too many times, right? Like, it's okay. Uh, we got much quicker at it this time. It's a far quicker thing, but also uh, these are sturdy guys we've realized. So yes. even if they have crashed, yeah. I mean... They, they do well, well as long as we like glue them together, right? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, we, we do have the new 3D printer too, so watch out for that. And we have a much larger tank. We were using something that was far too tiny. <laughs> but it worked for what we needed to show at first, and then... You know, it, it's an iterative process. Experimentation is an iterative process. And so, you know, I think that's pretty neat. And I will say the the electrode driver cannot be at fault here uh, for all of it. The The printer did have a lot to play with uh, not being predictable enough to know where it was to effectively steer it around to take measurements. You're right, Max. It was the printer's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's awesome. And I think that, you know, as we're kind of rounding up this discussion on SVET and SRET and what we've been doing experimentally, we actually have some very exciting news where we submitted a paper that our awesome team wrote to the IEEE Aerospace Conference in Big Sky, Montana. And we found out uh, this week, actually, was it this week? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I don't even know what time it is. This week that it was accepted. And so come March, we're going to be able to go to Big Sky, Montana and present our research. And, you know, every research opportunity and to present, we learn a ton. And every time we do, it pushes us to, you know, get more things done in our research, find that next step. It's really an awesome experience. So we couldn't be more gracious to have that. And I think the whole team's very excited. It was a lot of work. It was an insane amount of work. And so we're, we're very happy and just honored to have this experience. I want to thank Daniel. I want to thank Max. I want to thank Patrick for coming here on this very special episode of Cracking the Secrets of Math. As always, we want to thank the rest of the group, Dr. Cynthia Flores, Project Ayudas. You helped us a ton with our AR, NASA's Undergraduate Student Research Challenge. We want to thank uh, the Gene Haas Foundation. Super awesome. You ensured that we could keep presenting our research. And of course, the mathematics department here at CSUCI. Uh, you're actually making our podcast even better. So thank you for supporting us in the best way possible. Uh, again, until next time, uh, we're looking forward to cracking the secrets of math. Thank you. <laughs>